Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health. This is a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas, and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. The intro for this week's episode is going to be really quick because I feel like I'm going to lose my voice again, but in today's episode, I talked to Kay about what is considered normal versus disordered behavior, being non-gendered, the intersection of fat hatred, sexism, and ableism, embodying the fears of the able-bodied, imagined expertise, and the dual reality of self-diagnosis, especially for those of us living with rare or rarely diagnosed conditions. Like I say about medical conditions at the beginning of every show, every person is different and their experiences are unique and personal to them. The same can be said about gender. So Kay talks about being a non-gendered individual and what that means to them, but their experience is by no means a representation of all non-gendered people's experience of gender and everything that comes with it. I mentioned having discussed the difference between sex and gender in a previous episode, but didn't remember which one it was. I went back, I looked, it's the introduction to episode 14, Let's Get Physical. You'll be able to hear part two of my conversation with Kay about EDS and some of the other diagnoses that they have in another episode next month, so stay tuned for that. I know we get a little harsh about doctors sometimes on this show, and the reason for that is that the majority of our interactions with doctors, at least the ones that really stand out, have been fairly negative. We point out in this episode that not all doctors are dismissive and distrustful of their patients, and I'm happy to report I had a very positive experience with a new primary care provider just last week. So sorry if sometimes we make negative and sweeping generalizations about your entire profession. I know that there are a lot of factors that go into shaping the attitudes physicians have toward their patients, and frankly, some people are just monsters. Uh, My voice is trying to escape from my body again, so I'm going to leave this intro at that. Find more from In Sickness and In Health at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. You can email me at InSicknessPod at gmail.com and if you could take a few moments to rate and review us on iTunes, it will help other people find the show. experience is not nearly as linear and perfect and coming to terms with it as that sort of these are the stages of grief and then you're all better it's like right and grief is never that way anyway you know grief is never linear or anything like that um when i talked to a, a pain psychologist i think that was episode 11 she said that For her, and she is a a pain patient herself, she had been diagnosed with uh, seronegative spondylarthropathy. And then, like, 10 years later, she finally 
uh, had inflammatory markers show up for RA. So she got this second diagnosis and her, you know, she'd spent 10 years saying like, I am a person who has this. And now all of a sudden she's a person who has this and this. And it like kind of totally was really surprising for her and really changed the game for her. And she, she talked a little bit about how, uh, just about any time somebody gets like a, a really life-changing diagnosis that's really accompanied by an adjustment disorder, which I found interesting. And she, you know, she made sure to say like, and then, of course, that sparks the conversation of like, well, is it a disorder or is that normalized or whatever? But just part of the process. Right. You know, if it is normal and part of the process, it's not a disorder because it can't be disordered when it is the correct process. Right. But in order for me to get reimbursement for going to therapy, I do have to have that diagnosis of adjustment disorder in order to get that reimbursement. That becomes its own set of things. There's an interesting conversation going a lot on in some of the the, um, trans, narrow, trans, broad, and non-cis, even broader communities um, about uh, diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Since dysmorphia is considered a psychiatric disorder mm-hmm. at this point and that leads to all kinds of issues even in a best case where you have a good team working for you and uh i read a lot <laughs> academic here read a lot of foucault when i was younger and he's definitely influenced my thinking in terms of of what we consider sane and insane which ultimately is still going on, even demystifying of psychiatric disorders. There is something happening there with what is sane and what is insane. Mm-hmm. For all that I hate that term, I'm using it self-consciously here. And that what is allowed to be normal, and I'm not sure if you've read a lot of his work, but he talks about drapedomania. Drapedomania. Haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's been quietly written out of the history of the American psychiatric profession, mm-hmm. but it was, it is a hugely important bit of history of medicine, history of mental illness. Drapedomania was a mental, supposed <laughs> mental illness described by American physician Samuel A. Cartwright in 1851. And the um, defining symptom of drapedomania, how you could tell that the patient was, you know, um, mentally ill, was that they were a slave that desired to be free. Oh, oh goodness. There's been a fair amount written about it. Um, And yeah, it hinges on the idea by this wonderful white physician that a black person living in the United States under slavery who was, you know, uh, legally enslaved... Um, and suffering under uh, the forced chattel system. Their base natural state was to desire their own enslavement and to desire escape was psychologically abnormal and should be treated as an illness. Wow. There's a similar phenomenon that is um, also <laughs> depressingly better well-known because drapedomania has been pretty effectively written out of the American psychiatric history. It's like, nope, that never happened. We're not that evil. Um, <laughs> oh, we're so good at that, aren't we? Uh, uh, the Soviet Union um, had declared resisting the state was a mental illness. Yes. Okay. So this is something that I've read about. Yes. Political. So to dissent politically was a sign 
of insanity to be tr- to be treated with you know enforced lockup in a psychiatric facility. Mm-hmm. And so I think about that a lot with some of the issues around disability and chronic illness and the experiences of what are considered uh, psychological disorders like mm-hmm. depression and anxiety. Right. I know you've had guests talk about this before, some of the elements thereof, but right now we're getting those as discrete diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have the physical disorder and then we supposedly have a separate disorder that is depression about the, the disorder, uh, our disability, anxiety about testing and then there's the rabbit hole of are you quote-unquote obsessed with your your disorder which is supposedly its own mental illness which is just like no um we're not obsessed we're living with it right i'm trapped in here yeah so so this idea of instead of that being a normal grief process in which pain is understood we're labeled as disordered for experiencing loss when we are experiencing loss. Right. Experiencing a lot, like, and it's not just the experience of loss, but the experience of loss and then being kind of constantly shut out of trying to deal with that loss. Loneliness, profound isolation. And gaslighting and people being like, oh, it's not that bad. Or like, at least you don't have cancer or, you know, like all sorts of like really bizarre messages that we get from outside of ourselves. And then, you know, literal inaccessibility of the world around us where the world is not built to include disabled bodies. Yes. And being here on the East Coast with the snow reflected on the not being able to get out around, being trapped inside Mm -hmm. and the... Oh, well, everyone's inconvenience. No, not every, everyone's inconvenience, but not everyone is trapped. Right. Because the, they don't, the, the cities and all don't care about the fact that people with, you know, if you use a wheelchair, a narrow track through the snow does not work. Right. And somehow it's unreasonable to be angry about that. Right. And it's very much a, a way of, of, um, declaring certain experiences off limits certain experiences certain emotions that are entirely normal Mm -hmm. but instead of being you know instead of you know we hear a lot about things being normalized where we we see you know white men running the country is normalized where that just seems normal but we don't think about most people I there's not really sort of an academic framework for things becoming abnormalized mm. typical experiences are made strange and abnormal and and people with experiencing them are declared in some way defective mm-hmm. um, to jump back to much uh, earlier point you know, about the sort of um, uh, uh, dysmorphia and experiences of um, being misgendered and that being labeled a psychiatric problem and all of the messaging that goes along with that. Because when you're told your problem is psychiatric, there is profound messaging that goes with it. The, the, the culture says that people with psychiatric disorders are somehow to blame. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that's terrible and wrong doesn't change the fact that we experience those biases because they're profoundly you know, enculturated, they're profoundly within ourselves. So um, there's been a push to get 
transness uh, reclassified as an endocrine disorder because the fundamental problem is that you have the wrong hormones. Right. And it's sort of an open secret that some doctors will, will diagnose as endocrine disorder not otherwise specified in order to get treatment covered. Right. And I really, I am firmly of the belief that it should be considered an endocrine disorder, that the emphasis should be on the physicality, that, the, the, that there's something with the body that needs correcting, rather than this implication that there's something with the person's self that needs correcting. Hmm. And just, I mean, you know, I think that the concept of like Occam's razor is very flawed that, you know, the simplest explanation is often the best explanation. And, and that's often been used in science to uh, justify really silly ideas, uh, such as blaming a person's mind over their body in a number of situations. You know, it being an endocrine disorder versus something that's wrong with people's minds actually is a more simple explanation in the situation, I think. It, it is logical. It makes sense. Yes. And there's the whole, you know, the, the misapplication, the sort of um, folk Occam's razor that you get justifying a tremendous amount of transphobia. Mm. Also, just um, heterosexism and cis-sexism of all kinds is um, this idea of, oh, Occam's razor, we're supposed to have sex with people whose genitals don't match and whose gametes will allow the creation of new, uh, a new generation. Oh, well, Occam's razor is if whatever your genitals are said to have been by the doctor who assigned a label to you at birth, that must be what it is. Right. Which none of that is true. Right. Also, it's a total misapplication of Occam's Razor because it takes no time at all to find, oh, wait, no, not only is gender and sexuality variant entirely natural, there are good reasons for it. Mm-hmm. And it occurs in other species than humans. Yeah, which is part of the, yeah, it's, it, it is built into animals all over. Mm-hmm. And... The idea that male and female are different things and never the two shall cross is complete bollocks. You know, certainly there's been, you know, plenty of people have commented on, you know, the various species that, you know, that change sex. Clownfish being one, where the oldest fish will become female and be fertilized by the younger ones. I was reading about this. I haven't checked the citations on it, but I was reading about this because somebody was making jokes about what would have actually happened in Finding Nemo. <laughs> I'd see that movie. I would definitely see that movie. <laughs> and, um, yeah, all of this. And uh, uh, it's not just, you know, that sequential hermaphrodism exists in other species, though sequential hermaphrodism exists in other species. Um, there's uh, uh, the idea that, that genitals are one or the other isn't true. And the idea that genitals map one for one under onto chromosomes isn't true. Mm-hmm. And the idea that XX and XY are your only chromosomal options isn't true. So at no level does it hold together. Right. But the sort of cultural folk common sense prejudice is constantly justified by this misapplication of, oh, the simplest answer is obviously the answer. Mm-hmm. To which I usually go, the simplest answer is you're a prejudiced fuckface. <laughs> but then, then I'm not particularly patient with cruelty. Yeah, you are a non-gendered individual. What does that mean in general? And then what does that mean for you? Because I think that, you know, just within the last couple of years, people are starting to understand what 
what a transgendered person is, but I don't know if there's much understanding in the larger culture of what a non-gendered person is. That is definitely true. And this is why I try and talk about, you know, try and separate out the trans from the non-cis, because they're not the same. Specificity. Yes. So gender is a number of things. Sex is also a number of things because we have the whole genitals, chromosomes, etc. weirdness. Yes, and I did talk about that in another episode, that, and I don't remember which one it was. Uh... But sex is, you know, sex is also a construct, but it is less constructed. Mm-hmm. Gender is profoundly constructed, and it's intensely personal. And so growing up, I was assigned female at birth, and it, it didn't fit particularly well. Mm-hmm. What our culture says that involves, I was never very good at matching. There is more space for being a quote-unquote tomboy than there is for people who are assigned male, who have interest in supposedly feminine things. Mm-hmm. But it's more than just interests. You know, how I move, how I speak, how I argue. You know, it's closer to, you know, it draws on both how masculine and feminine cultural norms and my attempts to fit into a more feminine mode never really worked but it was never I don't have the sort of the same problems of dysmorphia that um, a lot of trans people have Um, and it didn't you know the female identity really didn't not fit so Mm. it didn't trouble me for a long time and then you know with the whole overeducated at some point I got into grad school and you know read uh, um Judith Butler and the gender is entirely performed and lives only on the surface of the skin what yeah that's totally correct and obvious why is this difficult (laughs) because that utterly matched my experience that there was nothing behind gender it was just what other people, what you, yeah, what other people um, can be convinced to think, and that is entirely performative. Mm. And then it was, um, you know, spending time with um, my trans friends, particularly um, a former girlfriend transitioned, and um, uh, uh, talking to her. about gender, I became much more aware that for a lot of people, Judith Butler's It's Entirely Constructed and Performed does not remotely match what they experience. Yeah. And that there is something profoundly meaningful in people's sense of self mm-hmm. um, and that this experience is so intense that for people who are misgendered it utterly you know is utterly devastating and um, even for people who are correctly gendered the um, you know this sense of this is who I am is deeply meaningful and having it challenged can be profoundly unstabilizing Mm -hmm. to which I pretty much went I got no idea what y'all are talking about (laughs) 
<laughs> so that's when I started to, to, to come to this sort of sense of myself of being non-gendered, that there is something profound there that's just not a part of my experience. Mm-hmm. Whatever that is, I'm not a part of it. And I've kind of come to the, the tentative conclusion that there's a decent, decent chance Judith Butler wasn't either. I can't speak for her, obviously. But her writing about gender is so familiar to me. Yeah. And so alien to most people's. Yeah. Who I'm sure you said, if you're experiencing an academia, I'm sure you've heard the fights that people get in. <laughs> professors when they're having to read Judith Butler and the how dare she say this isn't real. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember uh, reading her in some gender studies class classes and thinking, like, maybe it's different for people, you know? Like, maybe not everyone is the same, which is the conclusion that I reach on everything, essentially, but... This is a good conclusion. It applies to many things. Yeah. The, 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 I had a, a schoolmate in grad school, in my PhD program, who sort of became his catchphrase, is, oh, well, it's complicated. Because it didn't matter what it was. The right. answer really came down to, well, it's complicated. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's, this thing kind of not. I might actually adopt that as a tagline for the podcast. <laughs> it was a good one. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I've, I've come to identify as non-gendered as a way of recognizing not just my alienness to the experience, but it matters to me that people understand that that experience is alien to me. Mm-hmm. At least the people I know well and care about. People I don't know, I tend just to go default to feminine, female, woman, whatever you call it. Um, and I still, I, I, as I sometimes explain, I identify as a woman politically because I've grown up gendered female. And I've experienced sexism my whole life as a result. And most people at a glance will end up gen you know deciding that I'm a woman and treat me with whatever that means for them um a lot of people it takes a minute to figure out if it's a dark room I often get um uh uh I'll often get you know sir because I tend to you know stand and move and speak in ways that are are very coded masculine Mm-hmm. But I also have very clear secondary sex characteristics that are um, related to having large amounts of estrogen and progesterone in my body. And um, as far as styling and dress, it kind of depends on my mood. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's fun to play pretty, pretty princess, even for me. Yeah. And um, there's also the, 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 I often adopt a combination of signifiers. So, um, it varies. So, so I tend to get pretty, pretty consistently gendered female and that has real concrete meaning because whether we want it to be or not, that affects everything about how we are treated, how people, other people view us. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the medical field. Oh God, yes. Which is a whole other set of conversations. But, um, yeah, so, so that is meaning, so, so being, identifying as a woman is meaningful, 
meaningful to me politically. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, apart from the battle against sexism, it's not. But it, it doesn't fit so awkwardly that I need to fight against it, which is a tremendous advantage over um, my the people I've known um, and people I don't know who, for whom the the way they are standardly gendered is so dysphoric that it causes pain, uh, pain that it causes suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm able to move in this sort of more ambiguous space without it really chafing that hard. Though when it comes to people I care about and who care about me, I want them to understand, no, that's not who I am. Well, yeah, because it's a fundamental part of who you are. Or it's fundamental in that it is something that if I don't specify, people will assume is fundamental. And when in fact it's, what the hell are you people raving about? (laughs) Like, it's really, like, I understand, I believe gender exists because I think other people experience it. Mm -hmm. But apart from the performative aspects, which I can take on or take off, and the the degree to which other people make gender decisions about me and treat me how they think they should as a result, like, that's all, it's all social and surface of the skin. Right. Whatever is in the sense of self, it's just not there. Right. So, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but for you, you know, you, you're kind of lacking in the gender identity, but you do play around with your gender expression. Yes, I do. I do play around with gender expression and with cueing. And, um, you know, there are times I play with um, androgyny and this sort of neutral space, mm-hmm. but it is very much play. As opposed to a, as opposed to expressing something that feels fundamental, right? Because none of it, because there isn't a fundamental experience that I want to express through social cueing, the social cueing becomes a game. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and there, fashion is fun. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoy it immensely. I don't always want to put it on my body, but sometimes, sometimes I do. Um. And, you know, it is fascinating to me, you know, um, how gender is performed, how gen, what, what, what characteristics or colors or social cues are, are associated with the genders, what the gender options are considered, Mm. because they're not always two options, depending on the culture you're in. Right. But it's very much the, the... You know, I can get my, you know, hot dog and beer and watch the game, but I'm not on the field playing. Mm-hmm. And then, so that leaves me with tremendous freedom to to enjoy it without having a stake. Right. In our emailing back and forth, you said something that really stuck out to me. What you said was, quote, add in that I present more or less as a woman and the intersection of sexism with ableism and fat hatred adds in the dynamic that as I am not decorative, I have failed in my one true purpose to provide sexualized eye candy for random strangers. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, Um, there is. (laughs) uh, But it, it does circle around this idea that to a tremendous degree, 
there is an assumption that women, especially young women, have their one true duty to be decorative, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why, you know, women who aren't young are, cons- you know, um, made invisible. Yes. You know? Which she- I've experienced more as I'm growing older and like less, and as I'm less concerned with decorating myself, I'm experiencing that invisibility for the first time. And on the one hand, it's actually kind of a relief, but on the other hand, to be invisible is yeah it's dehumanizing in a whole new way yeah i don't want to be dehumanized as you know something there for the consumption for consumption by random strangers Mm -hmm. but i don't want to be dehumanized as something that no longer something at all but you know um dehumanizing into invisible you know invisibility and not only do i get the invisibility but I do get a tremendous amount of anger. Mm. Maybe part of that might just be that um, I am not afraid to be adversarial in dealing with sexist assholes. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of it is random, like where they'll initiate an interaction. And um, it's this, how dare you? Mm-mm. not make my penis happy. <laughs> and then you add, there's this intersection with, I use a wheelchair most of the time, um, especially you know, when I'm outside. I can walk some. My apartment is small and I have furniture set up, so there's always something I can brace on if I need it. Mm-hmm. And if I'm having a bad day, I use a cane inside. But... Um, I can only walk very short distances, mm-hmm. and I really cannot stand very long at all. So, um, I use a wheelchair, and and people really don't like it if you use a wheelchair and can walk, no matter how little that is. Yeah, they don't understand that most people who use wheelchairs can walk some, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And I often use an electric wheelchair, which has other coding mm-hmm. because. Um, if I'm going out with my partner who can walk and drive and all of that, I'll use my manual. But um, I just have surgery on the shoulder. I can't push myself. Right. Um, so I use an electric. And using an electric wheelchair and being overweight, which is a whole other story, because like I said, I was athletic up mm-hmm. until... I started having tremendous physical problems. My spine started to go. Um, I started having major problem walk- problems walking when I was 19. Um, I've had multiple surgeries. I, I literally can not exercise to any sort of useful degree without medical danger. And so I have to do it on limited conditions with supervision. Mm-hmm. Which is not conducive to weight loss or weight management in general. And then you add in some medications that I can't live without that are associated with weight gain. Mm-hmm. And the fact that um, due to issue, you know, various issues, the, the, the sort of more strictly orthopedic, like, you know, when my arm is in a sling and I my knee is in a brace and I can't stand, I can't stand, and that includes in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. Um, and the things like exhaustion and fatigue, 
fatigue and all of that. Makes cooking impossible. I When I was still able to cook, a lot of times because of my pots, I would have to stop whatever I was doing and lay down on the kitchen floor immediately, or I would pass out and hit my head on the counter. Um, I, I often, when I do cook, which isn't that often anymore, um, I will sit and mm-hmm. prep everything and then only stand as long as I have to. Right. Because otherwise, yeah, it becomes dangerous. Mm-hmm. So the the result of all of this is my weight has gone up considerably. And I would like to have that change. I mean, certainly there are benefits to losing weight when you have orthopedic problems like I do. But the feasibility just kind of isn't there. Right. Like, yeah. So... But the idea that, so I get this, this extremely hostile reaction as people assume that because I'm overweight and I use an electric wheelchair, I must be lazy. I must be, I must be using it because I'm, I don't want to walk. You simply just don't feel like walking. Oh yeah. Because clearly that's a thing. Mm -hmm. And the, just the, and the fact that, you know. I'm not um, fully paralyzed. Oh my God, people see my legs move. Yeah. They get apoplectic. And men have to deal with that too. But the, I'm a relatively young woman and, you know, in some ways, kind of despite myself, I am conventionally pretty. In other ways, less so. (laughs) But yes, so you have this sort of, well, you could look good if you lost weight and walked and did whatever it was I told you. Mm-hmm. Like, which, you know, my attitude is go fuck yourself. But it does mean that, like, I get rage reactions. Mm-hmm. Well, there is so much rage there. And, and I don't think that most people really, like, think about that. But subconsciously, I think there is a lot of, like, terror there. Yep. And that it comes out as anger. Yeah. Which is- Um, but it, it is a tremendous problem. And also there's the aging factor where not everyone is ever going to be poor or, you know, not everyone is going to deal with the same chronic illness problems that, you know, we have, but a lot of sort of, you know, a lot of, unless you die first, everyone is going to get old. Yep. And with that comes tremendous amount of disabling um and long-term care end-of-life care like all of that stuff is astronomically expensive even death care like even after you die if you have a funeral even if you just get cremated the only way to die for free is if you donate your body to science yeah it's it's um tremendously difficult and we literally embody these fears. Yeah. So the result is that in a certain minority of people, the reaction is rage at the those who visibly embody what they they don't want to acknowledge. Mm. Um, but it's tremendously frustrating. This you know even if you you know the 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 profound rage. Yeah. And sometimes violence, even. Yes. And then there's the 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 sort of the flip side of that is the self righteous, you know, um, yeah. 
obsession with finding the people who are cheating. Oh my god. Like the, the that can't possibly be your you know, random people. That can't possibly be your, you know, wheelchair uh 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 disabled parking permit you must be using your grandmother's how dare you right and even you know going back to what we were talking about before with people getting really angry at seeing people using a wheelchair getting up and walking you know like if they walk they must be faking it oh yes never mind again it is only a minority who have to entirely and exclusively uh uh use their arms for mobility but that is the mental image. Ergo, anyone who doesn't match it must be faking it. Which also goes into the um, issue of imagined expertise. <laughs> I love imagined expertise. The the this is my mental image of what it is. Ergo, this is correct. Ergo, anything that doesn't match it is wrong and mm-hmm. false. Not wait, maybe I don't have the whole... Right. Maybe I don't know everything about everything. Huh. Yeah, but, you know, that is such an ego blow. Yeah. That, again, you'll get rage reactions Um, where, you know, you, by not matching their biases, you have violated their sense of the world and thus must be punished. And, um... With that, there's a very real phenomenon of doctors acting that way. Oh, for but sure. We've been talking about this in sort of the everyday person, but doctors, again, it's a minority, but it's a loud and frightening minority. Is it a minority, though? I think the rage reaction is a minority. Okay, yeah. There's too many factors that result in bad medicine mm-hmm. and bad medical care, Um there's biases oh god there's biases <laughs> there's the but... bizarre and very well documented conviction that people who aren't straight white wealthy men cis men are physically incapable of feeling pain mm-hmm. ergo any complaints about pain must be a lie mm-hmm. there's the indifference there's the, the sense of, if I don't know, it must be all in your head because it's impossible. Right. I don't know. Meanwhile, our knowledge of medicine, our medical knowledge as a species, doubles every three years. And, 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 and they, don't, they don't keep up with that. You know, nope. it's impossible to keep up with that. And, like, that's totally okay. But an outright refusal to acknowledge that they might not know everything is so harmful and so pervasive in medicine and an outright refusal to like i've looked up things that are important for my health care mm-hmm. like brought in articles from pubmed so published peer-reviewed and had it be rejected on grounds that i as the patient found it right like it becomes wrong because i knew it and they didn't right and that they will choose to give well give me worse treatment Rather than, you know, confront being wrong. Mm-hmm. It's putting, you know, the saying, men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. Yeah. It's the same phenomenon. Doctors are afraid. Patients will think that they are foolish. Patients are afraid the doctors will kill them. Yep. And this need to protect the ego becoming all-encompassing. 
again, I do think it's a minority, though I also think it becomes more common with every degree of specialty. Yeah. Well, there's the institutional bias that, like, the further you get into a specialty, the more that, like, the, the assumption is the more that you know. But what, what's actually true is that, like, sure, the more that you might know about that specific thing, but the more time you, lear- you spend learning about a specific thing, the less time you spend learning about anything else. It's true. It's the conundrum of the expert. You know everything about nothing. Yeah. And it becomes tremendously dangerous. Yeah. And then there's the fact that malpractice only covers malpractice and not, like, the idea that certain things are acceptable mistakes. Right. The You know, that's not malpractice unless you can prove that they should have been able to. Right. If you have a rare condition, screw you. Yeah, fuck you forever if you have a rare condition. Um, and, and like, I don't want to say that doctors should be able to diagnose everyone on the first try and everything, because doctors are human also, but, you know, there, there needs to be room for some error, but yeah. the absolute refusal to acknowledge that they can make errors, well, not necessarily a refusal to acknowledge, because they often wind up practicing defensive medicine as a result, so as not to wind up in a situation where they are being sued for malpractice. And like, I think a lot of this, at the very least, goes back to medical education. Um, I did a workshop this past summer where I was with a lot of medical students, and you know, they would be talking about objective this and objective that. And I had to, like, towards the end of the week, I had to like stop and just be like, this is hilarious to me that you guys keep talking about objective, objectively knowing things. Because, like, you come from this background in the sciences where you're taught that it is possible to objectively know things. I went to art school. We're taught that it's impossible to objectively know anything, you know? And Some things I think that can be objectively known or at least objectively disproven. Mm-hmm. Objective proof is a harder thing, but this idea that what they have tests for Mm -hmm. is the entire sum of knowledge. Right, which is hilarious. Oh, yeah. And that the cultural markers of the culture of medicine are everything that there is to know, Mm -hmm. and that this is objectively true as opposed to culturally constructed. Yes. And that's just simply not true. At one point in the week, we had a, a larger group session about advocacy, and the speaker was talking about, you know, going to Capitol Hill. And, and, and you know, as medical students, if you show up in those little white coats, you're adorable, and, and the politicians love you, and they love seeing medical students. And so I, I raised my hand, and I was like, well, why, why is it that the politicians are so moved by medical students. You know, these are young people. Young people generally don't vote. They generally don't contribute to super PACs. And I heard somebody say, what's a super PAC? And for anyone who doesn't know, it's it's a complicated political money thing. Um, Particular designation for a kind of political fundraising. Right. And this is so important. This is kind of the cornerstone of our political process. And they have no idea how any of it works because they've spent all of their time learning science and learning how the body works and that's super important but then proceeding through life assuming that you know everything is not especially helpful for you or your patients there's two variants both of which are dangerous assuming that you know everything Mm -hmm. 
We're assuming that anything you don't know is uh, is not important, and they are related. Yep. But uh, there is definitely a well. I don't know it, but it doesn't matter. Which you get into. I find a lot with people in STEM field where it's oh well, you do humanities and art. Well, that just doesn't matter. Right. Like, well, no, it does matter. It's a different kind of thing. Yeah. And so I wanted to jump to another related topic that I've been thinking about a lot recently, and that's the phenomenon of self-diagnosis. Mm. Because that is, I it, there's a lot there, and I, we certainly can't talk about all of it, but we have this sort of dual reality. Mm-hmm. For most of us, particularly in our community, because it is very poorly known, with a but the with a very active patient community, mm-hmm. which means that um, once you stumble into the community, other people are very supportive and give a lot of information. And there are a couple of people I'm in contact with that I met through other things where I'm like, you're having lots of health problems and I would bet you any amount of money it's because you also have connective tissue issues of some kind. Right. Go to a geneticist and that has become, you know, at least one of them that has turned out to be true. So there is this, this sort of very important self-diagnosis and, but so clearly we're in a unique place where we have to Mm self-diagnose and we have be extremely proactive about mm-hmm. um, the everything, know, everything, um, which the result of all of this is that, you know, we become extremely proactive about, you know, you know, when I, when something hurts, my, the first thing I do is I look up the anatomy and figure out what's wrong. I don't go to the doctor and ask what's wrong. I go in and tell them. Right. Because if we use the metrics of of normal people who go to the doctor when something hurts, we would be there all day, every day. Yeah. And but the flip side of that is fraudulent Mm self-diagnosis and or mistaken Mm self-diagnosis. And there's there's several variants. I'm not big on, you know, the, the, everything is, you know, Munchausen's, which the psychiatrists like to tr- claim. Yeah. Um, but, uh, the, there are certainly fads where it will become cool to claim you have X disorder. Right. Yeah. And I've actually begun to see, it worries me where Ehlers-Danlos is finally, you know, sort of on, you know, there's so much organizing online, which mm-hmm. is important especially since so many of us with this condition become you know unable to go out for you know weeks or months at a time because of surgeries or flares or what have you but there is sort of a, a flip side where oh I was flexible as a kid maybe I have that too right no, no you don't <laughs> big difference and also joint hypermobility is actually pretty common in the general population. So joint hypermobility does not necessarily equal Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Like there's a lot more that goes into it than just joint hypermobility. And yes. flexibility is different than joint hypermobility. Yes. And then there's the 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 problem that um, normal mobility is defined as male mobility. So mm-hmm. 50% of the population is technically hypermobile because normal movement for women is considered hypermobile. Oh, interesting. 
learned this recently and I was pretty disgusted because, you know, we can't just have two standards. Right. Because that might suggest women are people. Right. Oh. But, uh, but that uh, would also re- require them to actually document that and study it and... Like actually, you know, treat your research women. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the related, though not identical phenomenon of people feeling other people's stories for attention. Yeah. There was somebody who targeted several people in the Ehlers-Danlos community online a couple of years ago where intensely personal and traumatic stories were taken and presented as if this other person had had survived them. Yeah. And, like, it was possible to document where and when they were stolen from. And it was tremendously distressing to the people who, you know, they're already dealing with horrible pain and, you know, bad health and all of this. And then... To deal with that kind of violation of your experience. And there's some bleed in between them. A lot of people who do not believe that they are stealing Mm. will pick up phrasing or details. Mm. Especially if there's a sort of... Because there can be this phenomenon where we, we... Sometimes people... There's there's almost a competition for who's sickest. Yeah, I hate that shit. Super unhealthy on a lot of reasons. And so, like, it becomes, you know, there's this sort of claiming, oh, sure, I had something kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the phrasing shifts until they're telling somebody else's story. Right. And these phenomena are related because the... The fads, where, where you'll have something that's a fad and for, for everyone to self-diagnose. Um, the stealing what other people are saying is part of guiding, you know, yourself, your doctor, what have you, to the diagnosis you've already decided on. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a good answer because I'm... One, because it is this this intense dichotomy of if I had just accepted what doctors said. To think about that is terrifying to me. Yeah. I, I would be even sicker than I am now. Yeah. So I have this very mixed feeling where it's just like, you know, if I was prepared to go, yes, you're right. Of course, it's because I'm deluded and hysterical and I need your manly intellect to tell me that I just need to shut up and stop being you know, interrupting the real people with my womanly fretting. The issue of being interrupted. Um, I know I just interrupted you to say this, but (laughs) doing this podcast, I learned to shut up and listen as much as possible. Um, It's actually a cultivated skill that people have to practice. And doctors do not practice that skill. I get interrupted constantly, even by even by the ones who are pretty good at listening will interrupt me when I'm trying to explain something extremely important. And it's only been since I've been doing this podcast and repeatedly telling myself to shut up and listen that I really notice this and notice how detrimental it is to that clinical experience because you never get a chance to actually tell your story and say what you need to say because you're being interrupted every 30 seconds. It's a power play. It's a way of establishing what I have to say is more important than what you have to say. Yeah. There's some very interesting uh, research done on um, the degree of interruption for male and female speakers. Mm. 
which again because of how the 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 paternal male doctor and the hysterical little a woman you know is still encoded into medicine that that also becomes a factor yeah um but yes it's you know it's this, this tremendous balancing act of you know uh, i think it has uh, i think i had to do with this question of you know see getting the care you need and ensuring you get the care you need by doing your own research because the doctors won't right as if managing the condition like wasn't enough to deal with you also have to manage the doctors yeah but the flip side is this um there is there actually there is risk and i know it can go wrong in good faith when the patient thinks they found the answer mm-hmm. and is wrong Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, there's the very real phenomenon of the patient has found the answer and the doctor won't honor that right. because they go, oh, well, you just looked it up on Google, ergo, there's no reason for me to listen to you. Right. Um, which. Ignoring the fact that like, hey, I actually live here and, you know, I'm able to evaluate information and like. It's not like I just spent 10 minutes on WebMD and came to this conclusion. This is like hundreds of hours of research and, you know. Or I just brought the PubMed article. It's right there. Oh, well, I didn't look it up. Ergo, it doesn't count. Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's this tremendous balancing act. And the, the utter disdain doctors have for anyone who does their own research. Yeah, well, there was that picture going around online recently, but, like, it's a mug that says, ah, shit, I don't remember what it says, but something about, like, your Googling does not equal my medical degree or something like that, which is so just smug and shitty and dismissive. Yeah, and it's just, like, so, you know, it's tremendously difficult. This This sort of... You know, on one hand, you're fighting for what you need. On the other hand, um, you're managing their biases. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, there is something there of, like, I do have concerns about the believing you have the right answer mm-hmm. and guiding your doctor along the path only to have it not be the answer. Right. And so, you know, if you sort of, because there's this thing of you learn that you have to tailor your story to get the answer you already know it is yep. because you give them too much data they get confused they get confused they get overwhelmed they get distrustful so like that kind of thing becomes hugely important right on the other hand you know one time out of however many i'm gonna have the wrong answer and by editing the story i can be you know i can in fact make it harder to find what's actually the problem. Right. And to that, I would say, I mean, one, a hundred percent, you're correct. But on the other hand, this coming from my background, like in documentary and stuff, regardless of whether you are trying to tell a specific story, you're editing anyway. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, there's always information that's being left out when you're, when you're, watching a documentary there's so much more that's going on just outside of the frame of the video let alone all of the footage that they left on the floor um oh yeah and, and yeah it, but it, it's, it's 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 i have no answers remotely yeah. no me neither <laughs> i've been thinking a lot about this question yeah. of 
that that self-diagnosis is so dangerous mm. yet so important yeah especially in the case of an underdiagnosed and and poorly understood condition yeah i don't have any answers for it either no i don't the ultimately the answer is you know to a tremendous degree is have a doctor who is an expert on the condition and also not you know, an asshole not an asshole and knows you and has seen you for years and can tell, you know, knows you're normal. And, you know, when you say this is new and different, believes you. Yeah. But that's like, and while you're at it, wish for your fairy godmother to make your disorder go away. Right. Ay, ay, ay. Thank you so much for talking to me. This has been a wonderful discussion. Yes, this was very good. Thank you. And thank you for listening to On Sickness and In Health. You can find more from us at InSicknessPod.com and on social media at InSicknessPod. If you can take a few moments to rate and review us on iTunes, it will help out the show. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other. Mm